0: Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont.
1: Well, welcome to episode fifty. Today we're going to be talking about polygamy in the U.S. And we have with us a special guest, Mark Henkel. Mark is the national polygamy advocate, and we're going to be introducing him in just a second. Uh, before I get going, I just want to thank today's sponsor. Today's show is sponsored by Organico Cafe, juice bar, and health food store. Organico is celebrating its 10th year in the business and was voted the best organic health food store in Bergen County. Visit Organico online at www. .organicogrocerycafe.com or stop by their Ramsey, New Jersey location for an award-winning smoothie. Organico is located at 475 North Franklin Turnpike in Ramsey, New Jersey. Uh, Mark, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. All right, so for those of you listening who don't know Mark, uh, Mark is at the forefront of polygamy rights and uh, he has been on a variety of national television shows, Uh, been interviewed by uh, some very good uh, interviewers, and has uh, always stood up under pressure. He's a lecturer, and uh, we're very fortunate to have him with us today. We're going to talk about polygamy in the U.S., and I want to get started um, by obviously giving the the general uh, definition of what polygamy is, because I know that everyone has heard the word it's something that people are familiar with. But, Mark, talk to me for a brief second about your definition of polygamy.
2: Polygamy is an anthropological term that refers to multiple marriage. It includes, includes two subsets, polygyny, G-Y-N-Y, which means with one man with multiple women, and polyandry, A-N-D-R-Y, which means one woman with multiple men. Most often both ethnologically, historically, religiously, societally. The choices that people usually make tend to be polygamy. polygamy, which is the one man with multiple women. The term bigamy is the term used in law that refers to secondary marriage. So a person who is a polygamist with three wives would be charged with two counts of bigamy, that the first count is for the first secondary marriage, and the second count is for the second secondary marriage. So bigamy is not just simply saying it's polygamy based on two marriages. It's actually meaning a secondary marriage, and it can still be a polygamist.
1: Okay. All right, Mark, give us a little bit of your background, and, and tell us how you... Um, sort of rose to the position that you're in right now, and and give us some of your qualifications so our listeners can understand where you're coming from as an advocate and and what your your credentials are.
2: Well, interestingly enough, this July 4th marks the 20-year celebration of the birth of what's called Christian polygamy, which made it possible for the modern movement. Twenty years ago, on July 4th, 1994, I began publishing a newspaper, now, to back up, I am not a Mormon. I am a, a Christian. And as a Christian, I was told in my church at the time, which was Baptist, that doctrine is based on what the Bible says, not what I would say. And so that was their first mistake. Because as a person who I'm the kind of guy, when I went to college, I got two degrees in three years with a 4.0 grade point average. The degrees were business administration and an accounting. And when I did that to the Bible and studied the Bible, I discovered that there was zero evidence of the invented one-man, one-woman doctrine anywhere in the Bible. And so it actually became originally to present this to other Christians to show that the Bible never, ever, ever invented the one-man, one-woman doctrine. That led to my publishing the newspaper on July 1994 here in southern Maine, laying down those arguments. Consequently, in the mid-90s, there was this brand new thing. It was called the Internet. And then arguments transformed from my newspaper to the Internet, and then it started spreading, and the Christian polygamy movement took off. Suddenly, there was a benevolent form of polygamy that was being described. At that time, the only time the media ever would talk about polygamy was in the case of Mormon or Muslim criminals. And so at that point, I, did, I attended the org organization. We stood up and started getting media attention saying that we're talking about unrelated consenting adults is not the same thing as that which criminals do. And then there was the Tom Green case at the turn of the millennium. And again, I was out there as the only one standing in the national media paying for media uh, attention and so forth to talk about unrelated consenting adults making a choice. And then finally by 2005, I was on the Pat Robertson 700 Club, and even they acknowledged us as evangelical Christians. Now, the reason why this is significant is for that, that point, for the first time in history, the two words Christian and polygamy, were not a contradiction in terms. And that catapulted me to the national stage even that much more, because now finally someone could stand on the national stage and not be dismissed as, ah, oh, he's just a Mormon, ah, oh, he's just a Muslim, ah, oh, he's just a liberal, ah, oh, he's just lascivious, that someone could actually stand and raise the argument and show them that one, limited government values of those who usually oppose polygamy rights and the values of even the Bible itself, because even if people aren't Christian, they know someone who is, that the idea of using government to restrict the choices of those unrelated consenting adults choosing polygamy is against their own values. And that's what to me to the national stage even that much more as the National Polygamy Advocate and eventually leading to nationalpolygamyadvocate.com. Then okay. by 2006, of course, you've got Big Love, Sister Wise, Come On. And basically I paved the way for all of that for people to realize unrelated consenting adult polygamy.
1: Well, I think that's the important point that we have to make. We're not talking about um, what you see, uh, aside from the TLC shows, but what you see in the media prior to it becoming uh, popularized in the media through shows, uh, reality shows. Um, We're not talking about incest. We're not talking about children. We're not talking about illegal activities in the sense of of, um, hurting someone. We're talking about consenting adults, who are choosing of their own free will. We're not talking about people who are forced. I know, Mark, that you were on the Nancy Grace Show um, a while back, and she seemed to suggest, as she spoke over you constantly, um, that it was something that was harmful. It was taking people who were uneducated against their will uh, and forcing them into this lifestyle. And now we see shows like Sister Wives, and she would even go so far as to say, well, if you look at the, the educational background of those women on the show, um, they're uneducated. And, and how do we know that they weren't, um, you know, forced into this? Now, that is not what you're talking about. We're talking about consenting adults,
2: correct? Absolutely correct. We would use initials to help people understand things. For example, one man, one woman is O-M-O-W, O-M-O. Same-sex marriage is F-F-M. And for us, it's UCAP, U-C-A-P unrelated consenting adult polygamy. So it's OML, FSM, and UCAP. All
1: right. and and what people have to understand is that polygamy is illegal in the 50 states, as well as in other countries, and this is what you are fighting against, the overwhelming governmental control over um, a a man and a woman's choices with respect to how many spouses they have. That's your mission, Um, and Um, You know, I I think that you can see that there is some sort of stirring with respect to the way laws are being changed. Um, Obviously, there was a Utah ruling not too long ago. Uh, People are familiar with the case of um, the sister-wife's husband who had um, struck down portions of the law in Utah with a lawsuit that he had filed. So, you know, clearly you have to understand illegal but there are various distinctions that people use. You know, people will say, well, how is it that it's legal? How are these people in Nevada or Utah? How does that work? And that hinges upon cohabitation issues. Can you explain a little bit about that with respect to uh, the status of the law in those states where people are, are
2: moving to for polygamy? Absolutely. The recent case that you just cited was in Utah, was the Brown case, uh, Brown v. Bouman case, and essentially what it did is it struck down Utah only statute of bigamy. That it struck down the what's called the cohabitation problem. Effectively, many of the bigamy laws in the states around the country are worded they include two different items, and Utah was one of the worst because it also included the cohabitation problem. That merely the mere act of a licensed, marriage-licensed man with one legal married wife, merely cohabiting with another woman, just a mere cohabitation, empowered government to come in and prosecute them for the crime, or use it for fishing expeditions for other not yet determined crimes, or use it for trumping up additional sentence time for other actual convicted crimes. And so as a consequence, Judge Whatups in that Brown v. Buhman case struck down the cohabitation clause saying, we do not criminalize cohabitation for any other reason. People are afraid to shack up every day. We don't have to, uh, the pursuit of criminalization for adultery and fornication and shacking up or cohabiting. And so he struck down that portion so the government couldn't say, oh, so you're, even though you only have one marriage license, your cohabitation is, still means you're a polygamist. He removed that ability, so now you've got the difference between de facto polygamy and de jure polygamy. De jure polygamy is having multiple marriage licenses. De facto polygamy is having only one marriage license while cohabiting with others.
1: I'm sorry, go ahead, Mark.
2: De jure polygamy is still a crime. You cannot have multiple marriage licenses. All that decision did in the state of Utah only so far is that it has decriminalized de facto polygamy so that as long as a person only has, one marriage license and no more is that the cohabitation cannot be used against them to still accuse them of polygamy.
1: Right, because as it stands right now, even someone like Brown, he has one marriage license. So in the eyes of the law, he's married to one woman but cohabitates with the others. And so you know, the governmental control that Mark is speaking of is the uh, ability – of the government to say, I'm, you know, we're going to issue one marriage license and one marriage license only. We will not issue multiple marriage licenses. So that's what we're talking about. And before we get further into the, the, the topic, um, there's been a tremendous amount of, of debate and a lot of, um, you know, negative, negative comments about polygamy. And for example, you take someone like Nancy Grace, who's they're speaking about the rights of women, and they're, they're ignorant, they're uneducated, and they're being abused. And it's, it's infrequent that you hear from the woman's perspective. We're fortunate today to have a caller with us, Mark. Uh, her name is Annette. I'd like to bring her on the line. Thank you. Uh, Annette, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Annette. You're on uh, live with Peter and Mark Henkel and um, obviously you know the topic today, polygamy, and you have uh, a unique perspective. You're a female, and uh, I'm sure you've heard in the media, and you've seen it portrayed as a very negative thing and that women are stupid and uneducated, and that's why they go into a, a relationship with multiple wives or sister wives. What are, what are your feelings, and how do you uh, think about this?
3: I think it can be very beneficial for multiple wives, when you have one working and one at home taking care of the family or taking care of the home, they complement each other. And, and they can be, you know, very good friends and have somebody to, to talk to and, and to work out the different things that they each like. They don't force, you know, I don't like doing cleaning, but I have no problem doing the organization and the shopping. So I do what the talent I have, she does what the talent she has, and we help each other out.
1: And now do you feel that, you know, you are forced into this, that you're an uneducated person? Or, you know, as Mark has said, and Mark, you can say it better than I can, you, you say that you're doing this for women.
2: Absolutely. To me, this is a woman's choice movement. You know, it really is, ultimately. It, it, Anti-polygamy requires people to think that women are stupid and not capable of protecting and making their own decisions themselves. But in today's society, women are very intelligent, very smart, very capable, and certainly any, any guy who would be a polygamist and is involved with two or more women, the minute he thinks he's going to start acting like an idiot, those women are going to gang up on them, on him. Seriously, there, there's no <laughs> way a guy is going to get away with it. <laughs> if you think you're bit of women, you be in a dark house with just woman, you try being be in a dark house with multiple
1: women. <laughs> Annette, do you agree with that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't have a problem with, with multiple wives. I mean, this is something that my husband and I have been discussing for quite some time as an option someday. We really do want this, and neither one of us, would want to pursue it later if the other one didn't agree. It's something we both agree on. Nobody's forcing either one of us. I actually think it's a wonderful idea.
1: Now, Annette, what do you think about uh, the law as it stands in the, in the states today where uh, it's a misdemeanor, it's a felony, it's, you know, depending upon the state, you could be prosecuted and go to jail. What do you think about uh, the ability of the government to punish people for choosing to be with more than uh, you know one one woman
3: I don't think the government needs to be in anybody's business like that. I mean the government just needs to get out of personal business and let people live their own lives and have a, a contracts where they can dictate what they want for their lives and not what the government wants.
1: now, Mark, you were talking earlier about the uh, the ruling in Utah and how it just essentially um, invalidated the criminal um, punishment for cohabitation. But if you take this whole idea of, of government control and you take it you know, to, to the um, 1984 backdrop, couldn't you see where, where the government could say, well, you can't cohabitate and we have a law against cohabitation with respect to people with multiple wives, but it goes further to say there's no cohabitation for anyone. And then it just leads to more and more and more government control. Is that what you're fighting against Mark?
2: Well, I don't know that I see our government direction going in the direction of actually criminalizing all cohabitation unlicensed. I don't know that I see that, that actually happening. I, I do believe that the, I've used the term called marriage control. I know on the left they like to call it marriage equality and on the right they like to call it marriage protection that they're fighting. But really to call marriage control, marriage protection, is like calling gun control gun protection. It just isn't possible. And to call it, uh, on the left they're calling it marriage equality, but apparently it's a George Orwellian animal farm type of equality where some people are less equal than others, whereas the woman that that wants to join a family that's already married is somehow less equal than those who want to choose a partner of the same sex. It it's really it is about marriage control and we call for abolishing all marriage control for unrelated consenting adults. And that's why we call it the polygamy rights win win solution to end the marriage debate once and for all. And it's simple. Abolish all marriage control for unrelated consenting adults, then no one gets to use government to redefine marriage, no one gets to reimpose, to impose their redefinitions of marriage on others, whether it's their religious belief or their imagination of a new configuration. Nobody gets to force anybody against their own will, everybody's free, and the marriage debate has ended. And that's what we actually call for is an ab- abolition of government marriage control for unrelated consenting adults.
1: Yeah, and and I think, again, you know, focusing on what you're you're actually saying, you're talking about consenting adults. And, you know, as Annette pointed out, she and her husband have had this discussion. And this is something that, not being forced, we're not talking about the dark, uh, you know, evil side of of a cult leader or uh, someone who is impacting the rights of children. Um, We're talking about consenting adults. Now, Annette, do you believe that this is something that uh, you should be able to do from a religious standpoint, or does religion not come into play here?
0: Oh, no,
3: I'm a Christian. I do believe that it is a religious calling. I don't think it's something that everybody is called to do, um, whether you're um, married or not married or whether you consider polygamy. It's something that is a calling, and everybody involved needs have that calling and like i said nobody should ever be forced and that's not what this is about this is about having the consent having the the knowledge and and working and talking together because when you have polygamy you've got multiple people you've got to consider on on their thoughts and their feelings and their discussions so there's a lot more communication that i have noticed in polygamy families than there is in traditional families
1: mark do you agree with that
2: i would I would definitely
3: agree that, in order for polygamy to be
2: successful, it requires great amounts of communication. The dynamics that are involved in an in one man one woman is you know it's one if you could even say it's it's a exponential when you start adding for example it's not really adding two wise it's two to the two of the dynamics because every dynamic of action you have with one, you have to also then consider the reaction and consequential actions involved with the other spouse as well. So there's greater requirements for communication. I often liken it to the concept of mathematics. But first you have to learn how to add. Then you learn to multiply. Then you learn algebra. Then you learn trigonometry. Then you learn calculus. And the same thing for skill level of husbandhood, you really have, as a man, for those who would be a polygamous man, you really have to develop such good communication skills sort of the proverbial calculus level. And yet we have people who are only familiar with knowing how to add or multiply or maybe do a little bit of algebra saying that calculus is impossible, therefore we must criminalize it. And it's the same thing, people who are only familiar with capable being in relationships of one man, one woman, saying that it's impossible to have healthy polygamous relationships when really it's just more advanced than they're capable of understanding.
1: Right. Uh, Annette, let me ask you this final question before I let you go. Um, Are you worried if polygamy was the route that you chose? Are you worried about uh, the criminality of it and living your life in fear? Is that something that
3: concerns you? Well, this is something that we're considering at the moment. Where I live, you can't even say wife, little known cohabitate-type situation. So, I mean, we could say girlfriend all we want, and there's not a legal problem whatsoever. But the moment you say wife, that's when you have the problem, and that's where you have the the commitment and, and, and showing that you're honestly caring and everything when you say wife. So, I mean... Whether or not, you know, I I don't want any kind of legality type problems, no. Um, I'm hoping to try to work to make it to where, you know, one one license is fine and we don't have to have license for everybody involved. The spiritual marriage is fine. So we just need to make it decriminalized so that way we don't get in trouble just because we have the fact that there is a multiple wife later.
1: All right Annette, I'd like to thank you for calling in today. Thank you. Mark, um well, let's talk about um the idea of of gay rights for a second. And I know that you've been asked questions concerning gay rights and and sort of drawing a parallel between gay rights and uh polygamy. But what I want to talk about specifically is is this and um, I, you know, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around this idea to begin with. So you have same-sex couples, and there's never been, to the extent that I'm aware, a law that says you cannot be with the same-sex person in a relationship, dating or whatever you want to call it. You know, uh, Obviously, there's a marriage debate, but that's something different. I'm talking about your ability as an American citizen to say, I am going to date um, someone of the same sex, or I'm going to be involved in an interracial relationship. The government doesn't tell you that that that's illegal. They don't criminalize that. So how do they criminalize the desire to be with more than one wife?
2: Are you asking this in the context of the criminalization of verbalizing it?
1: You know I'm trying to 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 understand the the argument that the government makes concerning the illegality of it because if you if you're not going to say it's illegal to um, to date someone of the same sex or you're not going to say as the government it's illegal to date someone who is a different race religion or creed than you, then why does the government feel it necessary what is the, the as far as your research has shown and, and your involvement with the government, what does the government argue is the problem with that? Why are, you know, it seems, let's, let's call it, you know, they're picking on polygamists, if you will. Why? What's your take on that?
2: If, for, I first address the, the issue in the law. Many states, for example, in my own state, and I believe Annette touched on it as well in her state, is what's called the purported prong in the bigamy laws. For example, in my particular state, because I'm not in Utah, because the decision that took place in Utah is currently limited to Utah, so it doesn't protect me in the state of Maine, where I'm at, that the Maine statute of bigamy says that um, a person is guilty guilty of bigamy if... He is a a married person and marries or purports to marry another, knowing he is legally ineligible to do so. So for me, in my state, it is currently against the law. For me, as a happily one marriage licensed man, to express the free speech act of just one word to another woman in the family, my, my free speech act of saying wife. That one word becomes a crime because it's purporting to be married. So that's the means by which this law is being tyrannized upon us. The laws itself came to us during the 1800s and were primarily against the Mormonism of the era. The actual, the first case, the first law actually that was passed was in 1862 that took place while America was distracted during the Civil War. Essentially, at the time, they understood that the Tenth Amendment prohibited federal government involvement in laws that is not, if the Constitution doesn't specifically authorize the federal government to do something, the 10th Amendment prohibits the federal government from doing it. And in that era, they knew that was true. That was in the Republican plan. But the issue was, in those days, Utah was a territory. It was not a state. So the 10th Amendment did not apply to the Utah territory, therefore it defaulted to the Jurisdictional Management Clause of the Constitution of Article 4, Section 3, Clause 2, that non-state territories will be managed by the federal government. So in 1862, the Moreau bigamy Act was a federal jurisdictional management of a non-state territory of Utah, and that's how they were able to get around the Tenth Amendment prohibition of marriage control. That law was passed while America was distracted during the Civil War, and then eventually a gentleman named George Reynolds, who was a Mormon in the Utah Territory, tried to sue it. He did not have the Tenth Amendment defense because he was not coming from a state. He was coming from a non-state territory, which was the territory of Utah in those days. And so he was forced to use a religious freedom argument. And there there are some questions that happen about the specific doctrine of absolute fundamentalist Mormonism that creates challenges for many people regarding the issue of consent. And that is, the there is a doctrine called the preexistence of souls that the, the fundamentalist doctrine does believe in. And in those days, and that's why they were afraid of it. And that doctrine says that, that, that they have to have as many children as possible so that these preexisting souls will be born in the righteous Mormon families and not in the supposed heathen. And that creates a doctrinal obligation to turn women into baby factories. And that's certainly not about choice. And so that created an anathema of opposition because of that particular paradigm. But that doesn't mean all polygamy by itself is bad. But they went after it with a anti-Mormon bias. And sure enough, by 1878, they rattled the United States case Basically transformed what was a jurisdictional management clause of non-state territory into a nationwide precedent. You know, it's funny you hear conservatives today talk about those liberal activist judges concocting laws right, that aren't valuable, that aren't correct. That's exactly what they would have to say that the Supreme Court did in 1878 when they transformed the 1862 Morrill Anti-Bigamy Act, which was limited only to non-state territories, into being a federal nationwide precedent and then they blackmailed all incoming states saying you will not be allowed to be a state unless you add these anti-bigamy laws, statutes, and amendments to your constitution or to your laws and, and in order to be, get their statehood, then they would enact those laws. And then eventually it became statewide, it, nationwide, every state had an anti-bigamy laws. That's how it all took place. But the all right, one now, thing let me I ask you a
1: question. To... Let me just ask you yeah. a question. So just to understand it better, are you suggesting that the reason for the bigamy laws in the first place arose out of um, some of the Mormon beliefs where, uh, as you called it, you know, you take a woman and say you've got to give birth, uh, you know, this is how many children you've got to have per year. Is that where you believe that the the anti-bigamy laws stemmed from?
2: Well, I do believe in the era, it was definitely, it was an anti-Mormon fervor. It really was. It was. It was more anti-Mormon, and it's, it really was anti-religious from from that perspective. And, I, and and because it was, and the doctrines only made it more uh, more offensive to uh, to the people of the day of the era. But, but I do want to be clear that for those who would say that the anti-polygamy laws and the Supreme Court decision and all that were supposedly about egalitarianism and caring about equality of women. I would put this point to prove to you that that is 100% false, and here's why. All of this took place decades and decades before they ever let women have the right to vote in 1920. This had nothing to do with egalitarianism. What this really did was about control of people using government. And it was not about creating equality for women because they certainly did not care about the equality of women in those days. And in today's culture, where women are educated and strong and smart and not property rights and have the, uh, not, excuse me, not property that are owned by men, that actually have full functioning value in our society and freedom, polygamy becomes a choice for them and And now anti-polygamy is this big uh, patriarchal, big uh, trying to paternalistic authority saying, women, you can't choose the better men. Because at the end of the day, and I'll finish it with this, if you have nine men, ten men, and ten women, and nine of those men are jerks, using government marriage control to have only one man, one woman, oppresses and removes the free choice of nine of those women. They either have to settle for the jerks, the nine jerks, or they have to go without. But if you let laissez-faire free marriage economics take place, then suddenly the good man becomes more attractive to those other nine women, and then the nine jerks realize, oh, my goodness, I better hurry up or I'm going to go without, and then it equilibrates anyway.
1: All right, Mark, would you agree that um, laws do need to be in place, for those individuals that are uh, obviously not mainstream, they are forcing children at a young age to get married, um, they're, they're abusing women. You believe it, that laws should be in place to protect those children, correct?
2: Well, the I mean, laws already are in place. It's not and to you, me that's of issue. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my point. Yeah.
1: That's the point that I want to get to, because it sounds like to me that what you're saying is Yes, keep the laws in place that protect children, because what I see with children and, you know, people who are polygamists but abusing children, there's two different things here. Polygamy is one thing, and then abuse of children is another thing, and that is criminal, and that should be, you know, remain criminalized. But the the act of being a polygamist does not mean that you are someone who is a child abuser, correct?
2: Absolutely.
1: You are correct. All right, now let me ask you about uh, some of these reality shows that that, that are on TV today. Um, you know, in particular the one with with Brown, the Sister Wives. Uh, what is your general overview of the show, the way it's presented, and the way that the network uh, portrays the women? Do you think that it is a good portrayal? Do you think that it, it sort of furthers your arguments, or do you think that it creates, um, you know, doubt in people's minds. And, and, and let me just clarify that. There are so many shows out there that will have a Christian family. Um, there's one with, with the Duggar family, and they've got all those kids, right? And right, they oftentimes show elements that make Christians appear crazy. Uh, you know, they're such extremists. they They do these crazy things, and... Um, while the show has a positive message There's elements within it That make you think, well, wow, look at, If you're a non-Christian, wow, these these people are crazy So what do you think That the Sister Wives shows has, has done for your movement?
2: Well I, As I had said before That I'm not a Mormon and I am a Christian I do want to also clarify It's because I could stand up and answer the arguments To Christians and not be discredited by Christians That's what actually allowed me To stand where others couldn't but with that said, I certainly stand to represent all forms of unrelated content of polygamy, choosing the adult in whether it's secular polygamy, Jewish polygamy, and so forth. And so not everybody does it for their own religious reasons or for their own choices. The Mormon polygamy that you see in, sister-wise, because they are Mormon polygamists, they are a, a more contemporary form of Mormon polygamy, not, not some of the, uh, the hardest die-hard uh, Fundamentalist Mormon polygamy that that is out there, and certainly this family, they care about their children. They want their children to have their own free choice, They want their children to uh, become educated and and in, out in the world. And so, it's not something that is uh, you know xenophobic and and hostile to the children. It does once again continue to pull in the repetition of the paradigm that polygamy is always Mormon-based, that, you know, this family is who they are and that, you know, they are Mormon polygamists. As what they do and the way they conduct themselves, I think they definitely demonstrate that they are certainly not minors, certainly have all married as adults, certainly are all very much consenting, and, you know, certainly there's going to be the occasional oddity. And, and the thing to understand, too, is that families... Do things of their own dynamics. So, for example, there's another show called My Five Wives. These families live; each family lives differently the way they choose. If, for example, as Sister Wives first began, they were all living in the same building. And then, when Robin was going to join them, she was in a building about a mile down because they just didn't have the room for a fifth wife, a fourth wife at that time. But they all actually lived together. Then, now you've got the My Five Wives show that just came out in March and is ending this next week, I believe they actually lived in a sort of a you'd almost think of it as a a high unit motel, if you will, where each one has one of their units and uh, they the separate units, so they're like separate houses but still in the same building kind of a thing. And that's their dynamic. You know, for me the dynamic is everybody's all together. It's a it's a full united family and, and while it's a uh, it's not salaciousness and, and sharing the same bed and that kind of a foolishness. But rather it's a bond of the unique family. I say this to clarify that every family is going to conduct itself based on the dynamics of the adults involved. And one family living, for example, the way the Browns lived first together, and then when they moved to Nevada, they had to live in separate houses because they just couldn't find anything that worked for them. That's the way they conduct their family. The way the family of the my five wives. In their particular building, they conduct it that way. I can't conceive of it, for me personally, for my dynamics, that it would have to be all in the same... Same building together. That's the way I would see it for my particular personal dynamics. So you're going to see differences just as a matter of normal people. You walk down any type of neighborhood street, and each family, and no matter who they are, polygamists or not, are going to be different. Also, and some of those differences might get highlighted. I don't know that we can say that that means that that's definitive for all polygamists. Anyone and you would say the same thing if you only picked out one house in a neighborhood and that said that's definitive of every family in that neighborhood.
1: Right. I I think that um, it's just such an important distinction. Whether you are pro or anti-polygamy, I think that the thing that that concerns me from a legal standpoint is the government control over the freedom of choice with something that does not affect um, or injure the other parties. So if you're talking about consenting adults, then it does concern me if the government's going to say, well, that's illegal, and not only is it illegal, but punishable, and you're going to go to jail. That worries me, because what's the limit of the governmental control? Uh, I, I think that's something that we always struggle with. But you know what you're talking about has such a clear distinction, at least in my mind, from some of these, these prophets and, and these, these crazed cult leaders that we've seen. And I, I don't understand, quite frankly why it's okay for same-sex couples to be together and now to develop rights so that they can marry. Uh, and yet this is still unlawful. I don't understand that. And, and I don't know that uh, – you know, do you understand that, why this is like this?
2: Well, I think that there's a couple of factors going on at play. Are you familiar with George Orwell's book, 1984? Yes. It's, a, it's one of my favorite books, and the whole concept of doublethink, and part of it talks about how, uh, you know, Winston Smith, the protagonist, is under torture and actually has to commit, in order to preserve his sanity, he has to commit an act of insanity. And I think that very often, because, uh, I'll first put this in the context of just Christians. For Christians, the idea that the Bible never created the one-man, one-woman doctrine and that polygamy is absolutely not prohibited anywhere in the Bible as it was written really rocks their world. It, 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 It shakes them to their core because regardless of how strong they themselves may know what they think they know about the Bible, every single Christian leader they've ever heard and respected, their grandmother who never missed a week of church, every single person they knew, if they were to believe what they're now being confronted with, they're being told that all those people they respected were wrong. That just totally shakes their world, especially in their own self-esteem. If they don't think they're smarter than all these people that they have sort of deferred to be their better expert on the topic, then what you're really doing is shaking their world. And so it becomes easier for them to commit an act of insanity, which is to continue to repeat the lie that doesn't exist, than it is to, in order for them to preserve their world, in order to preserve their sanity. And so it becomes, now they've got to defend the sanity of the way they've constructed their view of the world because of what they used to know it to be. They can't believe that all these people could have been wrong. And so it's easier to just believe they weren't wrong and to believe the lie instead. But that's where I'm sort of the, in the book Hans Christian Andersen, you know, uh, the boy says, the emperor's wearing no clothes. The emperor really is wearing no clothes, and it is time- so we start to understand that. So I think that there is part of that going on. There is also the, the, the effect that while so many people try to characterize polygamy as if it is somehow anti-woman, the reality is, especially in a modern contemporary Western society situation, is that polygamy is a woman's choice issue. Going back to my analogy of the ten men and the ten women, and nine of those men are jerks, Effectively, what we have done with use of one man, one woman forced on society is we have created what we are now in, which is the era of dumbed-down males, where we have marriage-phobic males and abandoned single moms in our society, and that's the joke of America that men are afraid of marriage, and we've disincentivized marriage, and men are not growing up to want to be responsible and be the kind of men that w- attract women, so you Now you come in with the free market economics, and now you've got the nine jerks are the ones who are afraid. They're thinking, oh, my gosh, my one man, one woman protected us. It's sort of the argument of socialism that if you create a redistribution, which one man, one woman does, it redistributes the better women to the nine jerks rather than letting a free market choice take place and let the women choose the best man to therefore incentivize the jerks. So really you've got – the men who are afraid of better men trying to keep a law so that the law will continue to redistribute better women to the lesser men rather than letting free economics take place.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Who do you think the government is seeking to protect by criminalizing cohabitation and polygamy when it does not relate to the rights of children because clearly that 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 distinction must be made no one believes that children should be abused or forced anything and no one believes that women or men should be forced to do something against their will but who is the government protecting with these anti-bigamy laws when you're dealing with consenting adults?
2: Well, I suppose first it's protecting its right to create a license in the first place then secondly, there is an aspect of what is called what we call dishonest bigamy. And that is something that honest polygamists adamantly oppose. Dishonest bigamy is sort of the, air, the example of, say, the airline pilot who gets a marriage license for a woman in Florida and a woman in California and a woman in Michigan. And none of the women ever know of each other. And that's a fraud that's being perpetrated on those women and there is a legitimate argument that can be made to prevent and protect against that kind of fraud. And that's something that certainly honest polygamists oppose. We're talking about consenting adults and certainly women that don't even know other women have been married to their husband and are married to their husband, that's a fraud that is not honest obviously. Hello? Yep,
1: you okay? Uh, No, no, I'm fine. Okay. Um, All right, let me ask you this, because there are those people who will say that it's it's fine for a woman to consent, it's fine for a woman to say, this is what I choose, Uh, but there are those people out there who argue that um, by engaging in polygamy, having more than one wife, and then having children, that you are somehow um, mistreating the children that, that that come from the relationships. How do you respond to people say, that say that you're impacting the children? And you know, a lot of these people will point to some of these uh, the reality shows, and and they'll try to say, "Look, see how bad this is because you know this kid's having a bad day or whatnot." So, how do you respond to
2: that? Well, I think that certainly the use of the situation is having so many children, and same thing with My Five Wives, that it connects, all oh, again, back to the Norman paradigm, that there are very many polygamists around the country that there may be only one or two children involved, and they may not be involved in you know, that situation at all. It is ironic to me that, for example, you mentioned uh, the daughter was it 19 county I think is the name of the show?
1: Yeah, yep.
2: Here you've got one man and one woman with 19 children, and that's Considered legal and okay and all that, and and, and agree. I would agree that it's not government's role to otherwise interfere, but I'm putting it out for the context. And yet, if you have more adults, that's more adults able to commit time to help the children. (coughs) Excuse me. So certainly you start doing the, the mathematics of multiple adults to children, and it's still a positive. That's more adults, more potential income, more potential Time to actually help and be there for the children. Certainly if you're in a smaller family outside of the Mormon polygamy paradigm where there may only be two, three, four children and there could be three, four, maybe even five adults, That's that many more adults committed to those children. I do use an example where I talk about the free choice of women. I think Annette alluded to it earlier uh, when she was a guest earlier in calling on, and that is, is that One woman might want the choice to be a stay-at-home mom. That may be something she really wants to do. Another woman might want the choice to be a high career where she has to travel around the country. These two women come together and make a choice. And the woman who wants to be a stay-at-home, she gets her choice. The woman who wants her traveling high career, she gets her choice. And not only so, but she can do so with the confidence knowing that her children are being cared for by a woman in the family who loves those children rather than shipping those children off the low-paid strangers at daycare. If anything's more immoral, that's more immoral than having multiple women caring for the children.
1: Well, I think that's you know, an overcharacteristic, though. You're not suggesting that, that women who have to work and send their children a gay, to daycare are doing something improper, are you? I,
2: I'm using a sarcastic irony to make the point that if one is going to say that there's a comparison of immorality that is even that much more dedicated to the children, to having women for the children, than having low-paid strangers at daycare. Absolutely. A person in a circumstance who has to do that, I get that, and I'm not really calling that immoral. I'm making a sarcastic humorous point to illustrate, we consider that necessary in understanding. Now you take it from that position that you're forced to have to Send your children off to low-paid strangers take care. I understand that. I have compassion for that. I am not condemning or judging that. Okay. You take that and you say, okay, that's acceptable. Now let's talk about women who actually love and care for the children and don't have to
1: ship them off to the low-paid strangers.
2: You can't call that immoral.
1: Understood. Let me ask you this question, because I, I, I've had conversations with other people, um, especially in preparation for this show, and other men who were who married, And and this might sound like a facetious, silly question, but I I hear this a lot during the course of of the prep for this show. And here's the question. Having one wife is hard enough. Why would any man want more than one? What do you, you know, I understand it's personal preference, but how do you respond to that? Because I can tell you, I'm married, I have one wife, and I have a lot that goes into that relationship. I couldn't imagine being able to, to have more than one.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, that is, and and I get that, and I understand that, and I think that that's wonderfully honest for a mature man to acknowledge in his own personal characteristics. (laughs) It's. It's, it can be back to that mathematics example, you know, that if someone is, only feels comfortable and capable of being at the multiplication or algebra level, the, the idea of calculus is just infathomable, inconceivable, hard to understand how that could even be doable or achievable. But people can do calculus. Then you take it to an example of basketball. Someone might be good at basketball, and they can sit and throw some scoops, and they get it in the hoop but they can't imagine being as good and skillful and capable of landing it, landing the the basket like Michael Jordan. Some people are more skilled and capable of things than others, and that's all we're really talking about. So certainly for those who are finding themselves limited in their own skill ability, I would not recommend that they be polygamous by any stretch of the imagination. But for those who have more love to give, more commitment and dedication to give it certainly can be a positive. Here's an analogy I'll leave this with. There is a family that was in my truth bear organization, and the woman was a woman who had been abused by her monogamous ex-husband. She he would abuse her, he would abuse the children, and pound on them. It was it was a horrible, horrible circumstance. Then later on. So through uh, ministering and time, she met a family that really cared for her and helped her and helped the children and really helped the children thrive. And they were getting excellent grades in school. They were having great improvement. And they became a family. And certainly they were a polygamous family. And she thrived and the children thrived. And she would say that what, what is the ridiculousness of the law? that says the ideal of the monogamous wife-beater is better than being the thriving polygamous family. As Dr. Joyce Brothers said back in 1984, she said she would rather be the third wife of a good man than the only wife of a jerk. And in certain circumstances, that's the case. And so for those who choose it, for those, who are, for those men who have grown to that level to really care that women actually would be attracted to that kind of man, then that's their particular choice. But for those who aren't, then they shouldn't choose it either.
1: I, I think I just want to just touch on one thing that you said. I mean, I, I, it sounded as though you were suggesting that um, being a polygamist, you have greater love. You've got uh, you're more capable. I mean, you're talking about the difference between algebra and calculus. So I, I hope you're not suggesting that you know individuals who don't agree with polygamy are are not um, as intelligent or affectionate or have capabilities, you know, I, I don't think you're suggesting that, are you? No,
2: no. For example, the person who currently, right now today, only knows algebra, if they chose to learn how to do the next step of geometry and trigonometry and pre and calculus, they could do calculus too. What I'm saying is, is that polimony does involve such a serious commitment level you know, seriously, this is not just all about sex. Somebody wants sex, that's easy. You just go out and that, that That's easily available to anybody in America. Polygamy is not about that. It is about commitment to the multiplied level, and it, is, it really does take a serious commitment and skill level. I'm not saying that, there, that anybody who currently is only at the algebra level right now isn't capable of learning how to calculu- do calculus, not at all. And the same thing for polygamists. I'm saying that just because that's where someone is at today doesn't mean they should use what they understand at their algebra level to therefore criminalize those who do learn to get to the calculus level.
1: Right. Morgan, I'd like to thank you for being on today. Can you uh, just tell our listeners how they can learn more about you and your movement, uh, your website, and where they can contact you? <laughs>
2: Absolutely. I have. am easily found at nationalpolygamyadvocates.com. I also have a YouTube channel or speech videos. Mark Henkel Polygamy is my username. You'll be able to find me that way. I am available for public speaking. And, and for those who are actually looking to find, verify real single women looking For polygamous families, there's the number two, twowives.com is a personal site available for verified single women looking to find polygamous families if you want to join that. But I can be reached at nationalpolygamyadvocate.com.
1: Mark, thank you very much for being on today. It was certainly an enjoyable discussion. Um, If we have questions from viewers, which often happens after we put the video up, uh, do you think you might be interested in being back on to answer some of our viewers' questions?
2: I would very much like to do that. Thank you very much for the possibility.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks, Al,
2: Have a good
1: day. All right. Take care. All right. So we had uh, Mark Henkel on. It's certainly an interesting um, interview. And and I think what's important there is to uh, look at the uh, impact of of the law. I think we have to question laws all the time. I think that that's something that, uh, as Americans, we uh, have a responsibility to do, and, and we see the questioning of, of laws and whether or not they're, they're right or wrong, uh, like with respect to uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, I think that it's, it's our responsibility to look at the laws and say, hey, do they still work for us today? Uh, what, what is the purpose behind these laws, and, and is it something that needs to be uh, addressed? And, and that goes beyond obviously this discussion about polygamy, because there are those people that are, are vehement that it's you know uh, a bad thing and it's uh, anti everything, and then there are those people that say that it's okay. Um, you know, I'm not taking a position on that, but what I do believe is that uh, we must look at laws that are in effect today to say, hey, do they still work? Because a lot of these laws. Were written years and years ago, and it's not just polygamy laws. I'm talking about laws in general. So it certainly is something that we have a responsibility to um, to, to look at. And and I think that we uh, you know we do our best in this country, but I think that uh, it certainly is something worth looking at in greater detail. Um, I want to remind everybody that this Thursday, episode 51, we are going to have on the show Harry Hughes. He is part of the National Socialist Movement, and we're going to talk with him about his group's politics and their stance on immigration and immigration reform. This is definitely going to be a a very fascinating show because obviously we're having uh, a guest on who has a very extreme view uh, compared to, I think, the norm. And generally when people hear National Socialist Movement, um, it, it obviously brings back connotations from Nazi Germany uh, and, and white supremacy and that sort of thing so we're going to talk to Harry Hughes this Thursday at 10 o'clock uh, and we're going to try to, to get to the bottom of, of what their beliefs are and the idea of the National Socialist movement if you have questions or comments or you'd like to speak to Harry um, you can call in on Thursday And the call-in number, starting at 10 o'clock, will be 347-855-8831. You can also send us questions on our YouTube page, on our Facebook page, or via Twitter. And we'll obviously ask those questions live on the air Thursday. Uh, I would also like to remind you that um, we have a very good app available that everyone should be downloading Uh, you can go on to the iTunes App Store it's exclusively available through iTunes and it allows people to ask legal questions directly from their their iPhone or their iPad and have those questions be sent directly to an attorney at the office who will respond to your questions this is a free app this is a free service Um, we believe that people should have the ability to understand the law and, uh, and this app will, will hopefully help people do that. I'd like to thank you all for joining me today. Remember to tune in this Thursday, 10 o'clock. We talk to Harry Hughes of the National Socialist Movement. I'd like to remind everyone that there's power in understanding the law.